Hello, welcome to the Suffolk Money podcast supported by Kingsfleet Wealth. One of the issues that many of us have been made aware of over recent months is the issue of the production of methane and the damage that this does to the environment. However, one person that has been working on this for several years is Misha Pearson. And it was a pleasure to have a conversation with Misha to discuss how she did not solely focus on the issue of food waste, but rather look at how this could be used positively to help those who perhaps are not able to afford food for themselves. As a result of this, Misha created the Teapot Project as a community interest company to work within Suffolk and address these dual issues of food waste and food poverty. I'm sure you'll find this a fascinating listen. Misha, thank you so much for giving us your time today uh, to investigate a little bit more about the Teapot Project. Um, first of all, just give us some idea of time frame. How long have you been involved with this? Oh gosh, I founded it in 2015, so quite a while actually. So in, in a nutshell, what does the Teapot Project do? So here's my elevator pitch, I guess, <laughs> which is so, so difficult because we do so much um, in the kind of in the background and just sort of subsidiary ideas. And we're always throwing different ideas and we've morphed a lot over the years as well. So we've changed our business model. Um, I guess if we were to boil it all down into core objectives, we fight food waste and hunger in Suffolk. That's, I guess, like, then you could start talking about, well, what does fighting food waste actually mean? And I guess that's kind of our, if we were to, if we were to say, well, what's the number one? Not because of importance, but just because one actually can facilitate the other and it does not work the other way around. So that's really why we are first and foremost fighting climate change by tapping into surplus food that was otherwise destined for landfill. And as we all know now, there is a, a huge amount of food waste, um, even with all of the new projects going on and large charities like Fair Share, who are doing um, a lot of work right across the country and we work closely with, um, you know, they, there's still a huge amount of waste. So can you just explain a little bit about what that really means? So food waste landfill, perhaps people don't understand what relevance that has to climate change. Well, it's a massive relevance, actually, because we talk about carbon, but we don't talk about methane. And I think, you know, I mean, the whole branding of climate change to me has all been a bit kind of um, not backwards, but we really did. We don't we don't pack a punch, do we, by saying climate change it doesn't sound so scary but actually it really really is if you listen to the science sort of underpinning that argument um so ostensibly that food the food that people don't buy from the supermarkets um used to go straight into landfill and it would sit there and it would rot and because it's food waste because it's a it's a, a biological um compound it will release some of the most deadly, the, the, I mean, for the planet, we're really, it is deadly, um, greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. We're not talking about the kind of carbon 
that comes from um, the transport industry and that we're talking methane which is I think now forgive me because anyone that knows me knows how profoundly dyscalculate I am so but I think we're talking at like over 60 times more potent than carbon you know it's it's really really quite devastating for the planet and what's even more devastating is that food was perfectly edible most of the time so obviously we only we only purchase food that's edible and we also take it from a different part in the supply chain than we used to i used to work very much on the ground with the supermarkets with the end of life food so those who didn't purchase up all of the yellow sticker food which boggles my mind because that's that's what I do <laughs> I'm a yellow sticker yeah, yeah. woman and okay. I like to get myself in there and clear out the shelves um, unless it's meat of course I don't eat meat but um, pretty much anything else on the shelf if it's got a yellow sticker on it it's gonna it's gonna go home with me um, but there's a, there's huge amounts that still still don't and so we used to take that and our initial project um, we popped up a cafe, a community cafe. And so we would take all of that food that was from the shelves and we'd have to turn that over super quick because of course it is end of life food. So we were cooking either that evening or the following day. Um, and it would be in the bellies of Suffolk, the Suffolk community who would come along and they would pay as they feel for it. That's always been our, our kind of business model. Um, so yeah, I mean, we've, cha we've changed a lot over the years and now we don't actually deal with that area of the supply chain. We work with warehouses um, before it actually even gets to the supermarkets because there's actually a vast amount of waste there. And we do that through fair share. So fair share holds a lot of the market share and we, we purchase the food from them. And then we redistribute it among the community Initially, when I piloted this kind of COVID, emergency COVID kind of online, deliver straight to your door kind of model, um, I was only really working with um, those in temporary accommodation, um, housing associations, that kind of thing. I kind of picked up the phone and got in contact with some, some people that you know I've worked with before and said, look, I want to try this. Can, mm. can we do this? Because... I'm kind of getting back into it because um, there's this huge amount of waste going on because of lockdown from COVID. Mm. You so, uh, it, it sounds like there's quite a lot of story that we need to deal with on. before we get to, to this thing. Um, so I'm just interested in just going back a, a step to when you started. So you had the idea of there's all this stuff, end of life, it's on the shelves of the supermarkets. Um, spoke to supermarkets and engaged with them and said look whatever's left at the end of the day can we just have it is that what how you yeah, started the, the project yeah yeah, yeah you're and, right so we approached them and said can we just take your waste because we'll we'll reduce your landfill charges yeah and there was a bit of a hoo-ha to begin with because you know it was relatively new fair share didn't even exist then um, France had only just passed legislation to make it illegal to um, waste food that supermarkets can't use and because they were being told they had to donate it. So it was still a relatively new idea, um, but there were a lot of like Morrisons and Tesco's um, kind of jumped on board. Nando's jumped in, like I think they contacted me. I don't even think yeah, I chose them. Yeah. Um, we got some contracts in place with some of the supermarkets to make sure that they're legal side was covered um, and we took on all the responsibility of that mm. and and then yeah we would pick it up at the end of the day and bring it to the cafe and and then the 
cafe, again, you touched on this earlier, but it would just to pin this down, the cafe, you would serve food. So just like any other restaurant, you would have a menu. So today, other than your menu, probably changed every day, depending on what you'd picked up the night before. <laughs> but you had a menu on there and you would say, well, this is all that's available. But you had no price list. Am I right in that? Yeah, exactly. I mean, we we were working from an old stable building that had been kind of we revamped and it was adjacent to a pub, um, the McGinty's pub in Ipswich. Um, so they I mean, they owned that pub. And as part of our deal, we offered to do a kind of menu to service the pub as well. So there was that option, but people didn't really order from it. And it just kind of faded, thankfully, because um, we were then able to do what we were really what we'd set out to achieve, which was use food that was otherwise destined for landfill, repurpose it into healthy, nutritious, um, tasty meals. And then, as you say, I mean, we would list it was almost like you know, imagine a specials board, mm. <clears throat> which you'll find on, you know, almost any cafe, restaurant, bistro, whatever you'll, you get a specials board. And the only difference is is people could pay as they felt for it. And that meant a lot of things, actually. It didn't just mean money, um, which was fantastic for me because personally, I, I can't, you know, the, I mean, the concept of money in itself, that's a whole bag of, like a whole can of worms, isn't it? Um, but I had people pay in poetry, um, music. Uh, some would just jump out back and help me with the washing up at the end of service. Um, someone helped me break down the boxes from the delivery or flip some burgers on the burger, um, on the barbecue at the weekend if we have an event going on. I had someone pay with a blender once. I think that's by far the most unique payment I've accepted for a lunch. I don't know. I thought poetry was quite exceptional, but you're saying well, blender. I'm a poet, so I suppose I'm probably... <laughs> don't see that as unusual as I'm throwing poetry at people all the time but um, <laughs> so I thought a hand blender which I couldn't actually use because of course everything has to be pat tested but I mean the, the thought was there <laughs> I ended up taking it home and using it at home <laughs> so, uh, but of course I mean the interesting thing is in any other format you'd be thinking what's the exchange rate there you know what does one poem equate to in sterling uh, yeah, but <laughs> <laughs> but of course, because it's not about the no. financial specifically, obviously you have to make ends meet on this, but what you were looking for is to be able to accommodate people who didn't necessarily have the funds to be able to pay in monetary terms. Yeah, quite. And um, what was lovely and something that I miss in the kind of new realm of sort of COVID or even post-COVID to a certain extent, though I'm almost shying away from saying post-COVID given the recent announcements. But anyway, depressing subjects aside, um, the wonderful thing that I got to witness um, in that kind of environment was people coming in and saying, okay, so I can see you've got tables comprising of homeless people sat next to tables of business workers from the local offices sat next to tables of mums with their kids and there was a real kind of mixture of different people from different walks of life and quite often someone would say can I just can I just pay for that table mm. over there as well when I I would say yeah 
that's that's awesome you know and if there's nothing greater than that going to work every day and seeing the value of humanity every day so how did things develop sorry i'm still dealing with things in the past to just establish where we oh, are now <laughs> so, much has happened. so how did that yeah, develop um i mean that how long did that last in ipswich did you then move locations what what happened from there we did we were kind of we, we were sort of victims of our own success really because we'd we'd got to sort of six months um we were busy we were making enough money from those who were coming in and paying more um because they liked the project um and we got to a position where we were ready to go into the first meeting which was scheduled after six months they'd offered us the building pro bono for six months on the basis that I spent a huge amount of money um, sorting out the kitchen, installing various bits and pieces, kitchen equipment, you know, commercial installations. So, and just generally decorating it. And of course, driving traffic to that area meant driving traffic to the pub as well. And so we'd, we'd negotiated pro bono. And then um, after six months, we went into the board meeting and sadly, <clears throat> I think we'd we'd quite well proven the commercial viability of the building we were in, um, and they asked for the building back. So we had three weeks to sort ourselves out. Um, and we put up uh, a notice um, on our socials, and it hit the newspapers. And we got a call from our friends at the co-op, and they said, "Look, you know, it, it, we haven't got a." cafe building as such but if you need a stopgap you know um we'll take you reprobates over here and you know and you've got some time to sort yourselves out so we did that and then we kind of looked at like hey what's what are the core values of our project and what needs to be done and, and we we worked out that the most important things were the volunteers primarily because what people didn't sort of perhaps take on board was there were there were people that came to us that knew we needed them and there were people that came to us that needed us and I could go I mean I could talk for hours on how that came about and I could tell you anecdotal stories for yeah for the rest of the day um, I've worked with some amazing human beings um, some of whom needed us and some of whom we needed and in a way we all needed each other regardless you know it was a symbiotic kind of relationship so we decided all well, the volunteers were important. So we had to carry on doing something. Um, the waste food was important as well. We needed to stop that going into landfill. So that was um, <clears throat> a priority. And also the people that we reached. So we were feeding the entire homeless community of Ipswich by the time mm -hmm. word got out and people knew what we were doing. Um, and all of a sudden they've got a lifeline cut, cut off. So we needed to figure out how we were gonna get around that. So we started working with local organizations, charities, people on the ground um, and getting the food out there. So we could still harness that community spirit and keep what was essentially a family together because we became a family. So we could keep the, you know, there was a glue there. Um, we could keep rescuing that food, stopping it from going to landfill, and we could still feed bellies and not bins. So they were, we really sat down and those were our three objectives. Um, so we 
were collecting food just the same at the end and we were making sure that it went out to partner charities so we worked with the Salvation Army the YMCA Helping Hands like all of these kind of um, organizations and collectives and community groups and churches and anyone we could really uh because there's still a vast amount of food so we morphed into that <laughs> so well, um, when are we talking here what roughly what what year was this this would have been 2017 maybe okay. 2000, probably the end of 2016 in yeah. 2017 yeah um and that took us up to oh my gosh when did i i took a sabbatical um, which is a really fancy word for burnout. <laughs> um, Misha lost the plot and ran away for a while. Uh, it took a year out. And when I came back to England, because my idea of a, of a burnout meltdown is wandering around Europe with a backpack for a year. So when I finished doing that, um, I came back and COVID hit. And I was reading in the paper about all of the food waste and I just lost my work. So when I came back to um, England, I was doing some research work for an antiques dealer in London. I was doing some random different bits and bobs. I was, um, a, I'm an artist as well. I'm quite creative. So I dabble in art, poetry, all sorts of things, writing. And I was doing a bit of kind of freelance work. A local surf company had just hired me to do um, some of their t-shirt designs so I was you know faffing around with all sorts um, when this was this new crisis was emerging and I thought okay well there's no one more qualified really than me to be able to manage the waste so I'm gonna get to I'm just gonna get to it so I started picking up the phone and saying you know what what's happening how is it you know and I, I remember speaking to Proctor's Sausages for example and he was like yeah Mish we've got we've got a warehouse full thousands and thousands of sausages that we've just prepared and then they've got their shop as well they have a, re a retailer out there Nipswich um and it's we're told we have to close so it's all just going to go and I think I took 5,000 on my first delivery and another 3,000 on my second delivery mm. that's just one unit you know mm. one business that nearly got put out because mm. of the lockdowns um, and thankfully we managed to save that waste um, and for me on a personal level of course you've got animals that have been slaughtered to enable that um, food to be prepared and so there was another kind of advantage you know it felt like we were doing something good on another level there's lots of layers to our kind of ethical approach I guess um, so at least it wasn't kind of rotting away in landfill either and we could feed some people with it mm. so yes we Initially, um, I put a post out on the Teapot Project social page, which was, was very well engaged very quickly. We were very lucky for that. The algorithms hadn't changed at Facebook yet either. So, <laughs> so we were still reaching like a fair amount of people. But the, you know, I, I mean, I guess um, a lot of that was due to the fact, you know, we were all just kind of grounded at home and waiting like, you know, what's going to happen next. And so we were on our social media a lot more than um, people got wind of the fact that I was back in and sort of like actively working and not just campaigning because I, I had done, you know, I never really took myself out of the mix. Um, I was cooking in refugee camps in France um, with using end of life food, teaching people how to make 
um, bread pudding, all sorts, and sharing in recipes. And so that, you know, my, my heart's always been in it. And I think I'll always be in it in some capacity, but I wasn't actively sort of doing what I do now or what I've done before in Suffolk. Mm. So people got wind of it. And, um, and I remember I was living, I was living on a boat in Woodbridge at the time. And Barry, the, um, the scout leader, the Sea Scouts leader, just emerges on the jetty waving keys at me um and yeah and then that was our first building to get started um and it was literally days after I put a post out saying okay um you know the projects we're, we're coming back we need to we need to do something mm. because I'm reading in the paper about all of this waste I'm thinking the restaurants are all closing down I mm. know what their I know what their walk-in fridges look like I know mm. how well, they are. My background before all of this was in hospitality, so I, I, I've seen it firsthand. Mm. So this is sort of early days of COVID, and you're reading about waste, and the first thing that triggers a response from you is, first of all, the waste. And, yeah, I think we're all aware of yeah. restaurants not being open and all the issues of that. So, of course, I'm then thinking, so you've got lots and lots of food. What do you do with it? If you can't open a retail outlet at that stage... Um, so what did you do? Well, I started doing food parcels, as I say, for um, local housing associations. That was the first kind of, well, we've got to test premises, we've got to test, oh, this, you know, health and safety, we've got to build a team. So we started small. I've been winging it and figuring it out. So I kind of um, built a small website, not expecting it to manage quite as much as it did um you know I was, we were doing maybe you know to begin with maybe 70 to 100 a week um uh, so we then went up to about 400 a week so this is meals yeah is that right? <clears throat> no actually it was a mixture okay so yeah I mean <laughs> another thing we did this is what I'm saying you can peel back the layers there's so much we were doing um we were cooking meals um we because the fresh food it was easier for us to turn that over into yeah, yeah. Food because we've done that before and then we chucked about six freezers big commercial freezers into the scalp hut and completely took over their premises <laughs> um if I mean there was just boxes absolutely everywhere we soon outgrew the building actually but um for that time, it, it worked perfectly. So we, we cooked up meals initially at Woodbridge School. They loaned us their kitchen because ev everywhere was closed. Mm. Um, then we moved into much bigger kitchens um, so that we could produce the thousands of meals that we were producing. We were also contributing um, to meals for the NHS as well, um, joining up with other services that were doing it, providing food for them so that we could get it out to the frontline workers. <clears throat> and we were delivering fresh produce boxes, dry store pantry goods, um, Cook Frozen donated some food to us as well because they liked what we were doing. Um, and some of that went out in the boxes of frozen food along with food that we were cooking. Um, so yeah, there was, a, there was a lot of stuff going on. Um, and I think people loved you know, the cooked meals. We had some fantastic chefs working for the project then. And, um, it was amazing. I guess from, from that perspective, a lot of people who were employed in hospitality weren't able to go to work. So were you able to right. take people who yeah, yeah, they, have they, that skill set? Yeah. ranks, for sure, because, you know, they were absolutely... I mean, I, 
any chef will tell you the pace of work they're used to, you know, 70 plus hours of grueling, hard graft. You know, these, these, these guys work like machines um, mm. and they're all of a sudden gone from doing service in a busy restaurant to nothing. Um, so yeah, I mean, they, they were happy. I mean, aside from anything else that would impact their mental health hugely, wouldn't it? Because, you know, if you're, if you're someone who's busy and active, suddenly to have that curtailed is hugely uh, mm -hmm. impacting. Especially to be locked indoors as well, because it's not even like you can replace it with mm. some other activity. We weren't even allowed to see family or friends, you know, it was, it was very much stay home Mm. um or you're going to put everyone else at risk and yourself so you know we we all respected that but mm. for us obviously we were key workers immediately so yeah. it meant that they could come in and with the bigger kitchens as well as we grew as a team I mean we we had a, a huge commercial kitchen which we hired at a very very reasonable price um the is the the kitchens at the Suffolk showground so I mean you can't you couldn't get better than that mm. And it meant that we could socially distance um, and keep everyone safe. And it meant we could cook to the volume that we then started to see because we decided what we would do because there was no shortage of um, surplus food that we would roll it out to the wider community and become self-sustaining. We didn't want to, we didn't know how long this was going to last, you know. I mean, I, no. remember, and I remember naively thinking when I took on the Scout Hut I said, look, you know, we went in in March, April time. And I said, we probably only need to be working till November. <laughs> this COVID thing's probably going to be gone by then, you know, we'll, be, we'll all be fine. Mm. Um, and of course, then, uh, yeah, <laughs> that wasn't quite the case, was it? Because we're still kind of going now. So, so you were feeding people initially who were identified as having a, a need for it? Or was it simply that you yeah. you broadcast so much on social media, as it were, that anybody, whatever their circumstances, again, a bit like the retail outlet that you'd had previously, could just come and take and give as they felt they were able to? Yeah, exactly. So those, it, it's a bit like the cafe, those who could afford more subsidized those who couldn't. It's, yeah. it's really, yeah. It is really as simple as that. And all the while, you are still stopping food from going to landfill. So um, we also did some fancy stuff in terms of technology to make sure, because one of the issues we found was people were apprehensive about ordering from us because they thought maybe they might take food from the mouths of people who were in need. And yeah. so, so many weren't in need, they just wanted to help. And mm. so we set up um, technology so that we could reserve inventory Mm. Uh, based on previous figures because we have all these fancy analytics in the back you know the sort of back end of the of the system that we were operating so we could look at statistics and we could make sure we always had a surplus in there as well and as soon as we knew everyone was looked after I guess and that everyone's real need needs were met we could then say well look you know we've got all of this left over still <laughs> you know we 
please buy it, buy it, mm. because you help us do what we do. And it means then we're not relying on already exhausted government funds, um, particularly during a time where everyone's kind of trying to tap into it because everyone's navigating exceptionally unique circumstances. So where were you reaching uh, within this? So you were based in Woodbridge. Were you aware of how far and wide these resources were going? Yeah, for sure, because I'm the one in logistics. That's pretty much my my biggest job. Um, so we were going um, as far north as Dennington, um, Snape, all the way around, um, heading west towards Stowe Market. We covered all of Stowe Market. We didn't get as far as Bury St Edmunds, though we did attempt to get a... Um, community worker community champion over there so that we could branch out but we just couldn't get the, the the team together over that side and we were so busy um over the uh, um sort of east Ipswich anyway um coastal um Ipswich is a, a huge is a huge one and obviously you know with with sort of in terms of uh, poverty that still is very, very present in certain pockets of Ipswich. We weren't surprised um, that we were going to be sending a lot of vans out that way. Mm. Um, we went as far as sort of Bilderston area and all the way into the Shotley Peninsula and as far east as Felixstowe. I mean, we literally cover the whole of the coast, really. Mm. Well, you can't go any further east, can you? So that's not really. Uh, that's... No, I don't want to get there. <laughs> no. <laughs> so um, now you've just used the word vans. So I'm now thinking, my goodness, this has escalated from here's the keys to a big building. You get a few freezers. We've moved up to commercial kitchen. How many vans were you operating at this stage and how did that work? We also moved into a much bigger building. We came out of the scout hut and went into a warehouse, which conveniently was positioned next door. Right. <laughs> but the move was somewhat easier than any move I've ever done and actually didn't require a van. Um, but yeah, we had to invest in a van of our own, but we were also um, working with volunteers um, who provided vans as well. So, I mean, you could have three or four vans out in a week um, quite easily, either collecting food from Fairshare or collecting food from a restaurant or Nando's or all of the above. And those, of course, delivering out as well. I mean, we tried to keep the van off the road um, from, from a delivery point of view as often as possible because of the carbon footprint. Um, so, especially if you're going out into sort of stone market area, so as much as we could, we would use um, we would use vehicles, uh, cars. Sorry, um, but I could have. I mean, I've, I'm running logistics myself, and knowing how many cabs I would have running, I think the most the most I had out in one day was twenty drivers going in all directions of Suffolk. Um, yeah, 20 drivers to manage in a day to deliver 400 parcels across Suffolk. I, I felt like I was running DHL <laughs> and it looked well, like it. At the yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow, goodness me. So you mentioned Fair Share. You've mentioned, referred to them two or three times. Um, tell us a little bit about Fair Share, how they work and how you've sort of in some way shared resources with them. Yeah, so they work directly with the supermarkets now um, and we purchase the food from them. And it is as, as about as cut and dry as it, you know, as that. 
Uh, they're doing the direct work that we used to do um, when we had direct contracts um, with supermarkets, but because they came in on a national level, um, sort of local level, took a sidestep and worked with them as the intermediary, I guess. Um, they deal with it on a much larger scale. So I do think that it's necessary to have something that can scale in that way. We weren't in a position to scale, mostly because of my own personal limitations and me at the helm. It wasn't, it wasn't my um, goal, just simply wasn't my goal. My heart was in Suffolk. I'm Suffolk born and bred. So I'm forever, wherever I am in the world, I will always be serving the Suffolk community because it's in my blood. Um, but you know they came in at a national level and we need we need people to work at that scale um, they do have to monetize it I guess to a certain extent um, and so we purchase the food from them that's the difference now the real big difference is I could be spending two three thousand pounds on food in a month um, and the largest portion of that will be going to fair share we're sort of small fry, but there's still a lot of people to manage. And that's a, you know, it's a big job for me. Absolutely. Um, so it meant that being able to get all of your messaging right and your marketing and your advertising, I wear a lot of hats, you know, and I think one of the things that I failed um, or that perhaps I like to think of it as I'm still learning to do, <laughs> my weaknesses, shall we say, um, are sending that message that we aren't, this food isn't being donated to us um some food is nando's for example we don't pay for nando's food and there are some other sort of outlets that we've worked with maybe not long term but just certainly during lockdowns um where they've not asked for a penny from us but no. our food bill is astronomical and and quite often because what we're trying to do is we want to say yes we want to be able to purchase as much food as possible on the basis that then when we've got because we produce um produce boxes a lot of the time from that so it could end up and we we tried to get our algorithms as as level as we could but it could end up that we've got i don't know like um say we say we put eight different variants of food in one produce box we might whittle down to a point where we've only got six variants now and so we would purchase food from supermarkets in order to top that up so that then we could get through that waste because a lot of people don't, well, they, you know, they don't just want a box full of like potatoes, onions and a couple of items. They, they want a variety. Um, so we were still kind of meeting that consumer demand, which was interesting because that's not something that, you know, we'd really worked in before. Just finally on fair share. So, yes, you might be paying for it, but it's actually at lower than market rate because of the fact it's end of life. Sure. So you are paying. So for anyone who's maybe listening to this thinking that's not much of a business model, you're having to pay for food. You are paying for it, but it's not the same as we would be paying if we walked into our local supermarket. To, to yeah, exactly. We pay by weight. And so that can mean a lot of things. If we were purchasing something that's more expensive in a supermarket, um, then, for example, avocados, they don't weigh much, but they cost an arm and a leg, right? We need to remortgage our houses to afford avocados uh, regularly. Um, so we would we would be buying those in 
considerably cheaper than we would get it at the supermarket. But then look at the, if we looked at bananas, for example, it was more expensive for me to buy it from Fair Share than it was to buy it from the supermarket. So it's kind of swings around about and we just had to figure out, well, what, what are we purchasing here? And we still, I mean, we, we bought a lot of bananas. <laughs> there are some pretty impressive photographs going around social media of some of the uh, mountains, quite literally mountains of bananas um, that we intercepted from um, Fair Share so that we could, you know, I mean, we, we were challenging people to make banana bread and all sorts. Yeah. So yeah, the cost, the cost is different, um, but it kind of balances out in other ways. Um, it just, it really does depend on the weight. And of course, if you're purchasing um, pantry items, which are quite often heavy, canned goods, jars, then yeah, then the price is obviously going to be higher, not necessarily higher than the supermarket, but it really does depend on the, um, on the goods itself. Yep. Okay. So you're getting this stuff from um, Fair Share. You've got this huge logistical arrangement of, putting packs together or creating meals, shipping out to people. And that would have started, as you said, began in a small way in March, but seemed to build very rapidly from what you're saying. Did that run all the way through? Where, 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 what stage did that need to change? We haven't stopped yet. We're doing a lot less at the moment because Fairshare is temporarily closed. Um, they closed their regional warehouse due to the building being deemed unsafe. And so everything was just cut off. Um, and they, they've been sort of searching for a new building and trying to sort of, they're, they're on reduced services as well. Um, they were re-diverting food from the north um, of England, um, but there were some logistical issues in terms of how we could operate with them that just didn't fit. Um, we weren't able to see what we were purchasing. Um, there were all sorts of, sort of minor logistic um, logistical things that they've had to do in order to carry on, um, but that just didn't fit with what we were doing. And so we've kind of had to take a back seat, um, wait um, and sort of support in terms of, you know, cheering them on in the background, but there's a huge amount, but we, we just, there's not a lot we can do um, in terms of running at full capacity. It's just not possible. We're not being able, we're not able to get any fresh food at all from Fair Share. And that is our biggest um, demand on the biggest demand on us, um, which is great because we know that we're providing fresh nutrition to the community. And also that's the highest risk to the planet, that type of food um, in terms of going to landfill. So um, it's, it's worth waiting for. They, I hear, have found a, found a building, but I mean, des describing my logistics to you, I mean, that gives you some indication as to what the logistics are in running a national um, sized corporation. Mm. Um, so I don't underestimate the work involved reestablishing their team, um, training, health and safety. There's, there's just a plethora of, of um, different logistical issues that they're going to be facing right now. And we had hoped that we might be able to reinstate full capacity with them this month. Um, but I, I, I'm, I don't know. So are you able to reconnect at a more local level with supermarkets or shops? 
Sadly not, no, because if you connect with the supermarkets, then you're dealing with end of life food and we just can't get it turned around quick enough. We can't um, we can't control what's coming in in order to produce what we were producing. Um, so what we've done, I mean, and then initially, you know, we didn't know that it was going to go on this long with fair share. So we've kind of just been going week to week, month to month, thinking, oh, well, not much longer now, not much longer now. And we've now lost six months of being able to um, provide fresh produce. And, you know, we're still providing food. It's not that we're not providing food. It's just it kind of goes against the grain for us because we are so passionate about fresh, high nutritional food um, and high carbon or uh, methane. And when you look at it in that context, we're very, very passionate about that. Um, so we've, you know, we've scaled down as much as we can. And then we've decided to use that time to get our own ducks in order. So we launched the website um, literally just like last week. And very lovely it is too. It's... Um, yeah, and so far, touch wood, there's not been too many hiccups um we didn't sort of shout too loud about it so that we could just sort of soft launch the website and iron out all the details um and get through those teething stages with less orders than we're used to so we're currently moving out of the warehouse we've decided that um for a number of reasons the warehouse for the last six months has been underused really um, and it's a shame to see such a large space being wasted because we're not having huge deliveries of food coming into it anymore. Um, so we've been slowly migrating into one of the smaller rooms in the warehouse so that that warehouse can be used by someone who's um, not in our position. Um, and that kind of kicked a different conversation about, um, well, what? What does the future look like for the project? How can we best serve the community moving forward? Um, and something, uh, possibly the only business model we haven't dabbled with yet is retail. <laughs> so we've decided that's what we're going to do. And I think this is a really important um, sort of function in terms of my own personal mission in the waste food um, context, because it, it brings presence a presence back to the community. We'll have a physical presence in the community. And I think that's something that we, as a team, we miss. Um, I think it's important for volunteers as well, because our work has been really lonely and isolating for the last 20 months. You know, we're going into a cold warehouse that we can't afford to heat, that we can't really heat anyway, because we've got fresh food coming into. Um, we had to socially distance. Oh my gosh, it was just, you know, it was pretty crazy. So I think in terms, and, and that was required because we needed a big team in order to not only take that food in, but also turn that food into produce boxes. Yeah. And if we go into a retail outlet, we don't actually need to do that because people will come and collect what they want. And then it will just be a case of, okay, so we've got this left, get in here. I'd rather give it away than it, you know, then worry about the cost. We've never really been cost orientated anyway. I mean, even right back in the beginning, when I told you what our three core objectives were after the cafe, at no point will you have heard me say finance. It's the the, the point at which I will never be a fully fledged entrepreneur <laughs> because it's just not at the heart of anything that I do. Um, but 
you know, I mean, I'm I'm trying to work on that because it is important for us as a as a you know having a future, having a viable business sure. model. Um, but I think a retail outlet gives us those options. It gives us some flexibility. It gives us different options um, to branch out in terms of other products that we can bring in, sustainable, ethical, local. That's you know important to us, and it also means that we can give. We won't need as big a team. Um, to run a retail outlet you're not going to fit 50 people in there if you wanted to so um, we can sort of scale down the team um, which makes a huge difference because a lot of our team went back to work in March and we were suddenly we lost you know it was like having an artery cut um, Mm. back in March for us suddenly we went from sort of 50 60 people being available to then having sort of 25 and then that Mm. reduced down and reduced down even more so you know, heading into school, um, into the summer holidays and people needed to be home more and varying lockdowns and stuff and people going into isolation, our team, you know, getting flagged up and saying, can't come in, I've got COVID. So... Being pinged and all of those sort of issues, I guess, you know, you had all of that. Um, So you mentioned retail out at this point in time, geographically, do you know where you think you might want to be and the Stop second it. thing is what <laughs> well that's that's good we like that that's excellent and the second thing is there's a is the cafe back on the horizon again once people have is that just not on the agenda right now no it's not on the agenda I'm afraid but not because we don't want to provide meals but because we are going to provide meals again we've got some great ideas on how we're going to do that but we're going to do it in a way that brings the community together more rather than it being all on our shoulders to produce thousands of meals a week. Um, We're going to work with um, chefs that we've worked with before and hopefully new chefs and restaurants and cafes and we're going to start saying to them well look you know there's a surplus everywhere and anywhere that deals with food pretty much so why don't we work together in making sure that we can individually manage any food waste that you have, um, whilst also promoting what it is that you do. Um, And so those meals, we're already looking at display freezers, changing all of our, what are at the moment, um, eco, wherever we can. I mean, we've we've bought eco-friendly freezers, commercial freezers, but they're they're the ones where you can't see in them. And they're the ones that when you close them, you can't open them for 10 yeah. minutes as well. They drive me insane. Anyway, but they um, we're looking at display ones so that people can come and they can sort of see, oh, okay, so maybe um, Sai, for example, used to work with us, um, a fantastic chef. He was on MasterChef on the telly um, and he's a huge supporter of what we do. He's a great human being. Um, and he's really keen to get back to work with us at some stage. And he's been, he's actually been in Essex in Colchester um, for a while now. And he's sort of doing what we, he was doing with us, um, but on a slightly smaller scale. He might at the end of service have like maybe 60 portions of food um, left. Now, if we put those in tubs and we make sure that we've got our health and safety box ticked and we say, okay, well, these are the ingredients, allergens, and these are the instructions on reheating and storing and all the rest of it, all the stuff that we already know how to do because we've been doing it since we like forever. Um, we'll make sure we provide all of that information and we can put it in the freezers at our outlet, at our retail outlet, and people can come and pay as they feel for it. But at the same time, they'll get to see, well, where did my food come from? Right. 
So it gives the added advantage of some branding, some kind of, you know, um, what's the word, reputational advantages for businesses that we're working with. So that's how I think we're going to move forward in terms of providing meals, because a lot of people really miss the meals. I personally miss the meals. I loved some of the food that came out of our project. And because I was working around the clock, I quite often fed myself and my son on that food. And I love the fact that it was food that would have otherwise gone to landfill. Um, so, yeah, it would be really, really great for us to be able to do that. Very good. Well, it sounds like there's sort of exciting times ahead on that. But I've just realised that we sort of jumped to the start of the project and we've worked our way through to where you are now and even how you might see things in the future. In many ways, though, I'm just intrigued by the fact that um, you've, you are the engine in all of this. There's lots of other people that you've referred to who have been part of this volunteer time and so on. But I'm just intrigued as to why, how and you know, what was the motivation for you in 2015, 2016 to get this up and running? Um, because actually, when you talk about yourself, there's lots of sort of art and um, performance and so on in the background. And to sort of join the dots with someone who's become a social entrepreneur um, is phenomenal. Um, so it wasn't planned. Tell you that much. I mean, I had this vision, but it certainly didn't look like this. And that's, I don't mean that in a bad way either. You know, there are lots of things that I'm very proud that we've been able to kind of achieve together. And yes, I, I, I realize that I am the engine, but you know, I am just one part, you know, and it is a huge, I wouldn't be able to do what I do without the team. And I'm not just saying that from, you know, a sort of humble position. Mm. It's, it's a fact, you know, that the, we work together in all the different varying outfits and um, different sort of models we've had to morph into. There has always been some very, very key individuals that have facilitated and made that even possible. Mm. Um, but yeah, if I'm to go back in the sort of DeLorean and sort of pre-2015 when we opened the doors, um, I would bring you to a, my dining table where I was reading, I believe, The Guardian, um, and it was uh, talking about food waste. And I'd not long since before inherited not a vast amount of money, but enough to sort of think, what do I want to do with this? Um, and it was from my late uncle, who was a um, huge advocate of charity community church um, as well and I mean he was just about as good at egg as you can possibly imagine I remember reading through his estate through the will because I was named in it so I got a copy of it and it was just pages and pages and pages of charities um, that he'd sort of known and supported over the years and and so I thought well what better thing to do with this rather than it just sitting there doing nothing um, I wanted to honor his life and passing with doing something that I thought he would be proud of but I just you know I didn't really know what that was going to be until I was sat there reading the newspaper it was about Adam Smith a guy who I believe was born in Leicester Sheffield area somewhere up there and he had had quite a turbulent background similar to mine 
uh, both of us had sort of um, gone in and out of homelessness, um, the system, the government system, um, he'd gotten quite in trouble with um, with the authorities on a few occasions and so he'd had sort of a lot of um, a, well a unique experience shall we say um, and start to life and so I kind of resonated with him as well um, he'd gone to Australia and he was working in a restaurant both of us had gone into catering I think that's something that's quite common actually um, people who who've sort of come out of turbulent backgrounds they quite often just jump into something that they can learn on the job right because you don't need to be highly skilled to begin with in, in order to get into catering so you end up in kitchens or I went in at pot wash level and after they realized I had a bit of a gob on me they brought me out onto the restaurant floor and let me loose on the customers um he went a different route he went into the kitchen and so he started cooking um and that became his career and it was mine too and he'd gone over to Australia to go and work in this fancy restaurant and it was right next to a pig farm and the pig farm um, was bringing in waste food um, from local restaurants and supermarkets to feed the pigs with and he couldn't get his head around how much food there was um, going to waste and so he investigated it a bit first you know sort of juggling the two restaurant work as we know very very grueling um, tiresome work um, but at the same time he had this kind of thing you know this this well there's all this food waste and from someone who's come from um, an eclectic background shall we say um, we've both of us seen hunger we've we worked in restaurants so we didn't really have to deal with hunger as so much on a personal level because we went to work and we were fed from work um, but we're very aware of the fact that if we did, hadn't worked in retail and uh, in hospitality and worked in somewhere like retail or in an office when we were homeless, because that's a thing, right? You know, people are, can be homeless and employed at the same time. Um, and homelessness isn't free. I paid quite a bit to live in hostels when I was young. Um, you know, if we had gone into a different line of work, we probably would have had a lot of experience with hunger and we were going back to people who did have experience with hunger families living in hallways of complexes that we'd been you know given the keys to a room to um so we were seeing that hunger um and waste food that dichotomy every day and so it hit and struck a chord with him and he did something about it and i was reading about what he did about it and it struck a chord with me and this is how I love the way the world works, because this is when ripples turn to waves, right? And I closed the newspaper and I put it on the table and I said, that's what I'm going to do. And I called him. I found him. I don't know whether it was LinkedIn. I've no idea, but I managed to find him and I called him up um, and I hijacked one of his AGMs so I could meet all of his people um and take notes and um, we all I mean there were so many showed up this he really did create quite a movement and it's still going on I mean it's it's huge I mean, we're part of that we're very much part of that um so yeah that's that's essentially what kind of um started this whole <laughs> crazy adventure of seven years amazing amazing do you know what i think we could be talking i mean you did say earlier there's so many different stories that you can tell so many other things that i could ask but i'm just conscious we have used a fair amount of your time so i think we probably need to draw this to a close well misha thank you so much for sharing so much of what the project has been doing 
what motivated you to to begin that and um and we wish you all the best for your plans for the future because it sounds like the next few months are going to see some <laughs> some quite significant work on your part and and i suspect we'll be um you know seeing the output of all of that in due course i hope so i hope so we'd like to think we are here to stay It was a real pleasure to be able to speak with Nisha and understand something of the purposes and history of the Teapot Project. Please do ensure that you rate this podcast. And if you can give us five stars, it enables other people to find us a lot more easily. And certainly do subscribe because then you'll always be certain of picking up our next recording when it is ready. We've reached the end of this series, so there won't be any further recordings during 2021, but we will be launching 2022 with a great summary of some of the superb interviews that we were able to carry out over this last 12 months. So listen out for that when we hope to release that on the 7th of January. In the meantime, I just want to thank Joy Day, who ensures that our media is uploaded so that you can listen to it. I want to thank Sally Birch for ensuring that our guests are booked and ready to speak to us. And for Kevin Birch for ensuring that the audio quality is appropriate and ready to be uploaded. So I want to thank them all for such uh, amazing work over this last year. And I do hope that uh, to you, dear listener, that you have appreciated and valued and enjoyed the conversations that we've been able to record and look forward to having you with us when we start our third series in January 2022. Thank you so much. We trust you have an enjoyable Christmas and a very relaxing and pleasant New Year. <laughs>